We continue through the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 2. Last week we discussed church discipline. We actually jumped into 1 Corinthians and looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul basically instructed the church in Corinth to discipline a man who was living in gross immoral sin and incest with his father's wife. He said that he wanted the church to be diligent about discipline so that the man might be restored. By way of review, quickly, we also saw that there are three marks of any real church. The proper preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and discipline. That surprised us, I think, that discipline was one of the marks of a church, and yet it is. We saw that it presupposes real membership, real accountability. The shepherds who shepherd your souls need to know exactly who they're accountable for, and that implies membership. We hold membership in special regard in this world. We also see that discipline starts for all of us by submitting yourself regularly to the teaching and preaching of God's Word. When the doors are open and there's teaching being done, you should be there. Your soul needs it. That's how the Holy Spirit corrects and changes and indeed disciplines you. We looked at Matthew 18 quickly and we saw that Jesus told us that private offenses should be handled privately. If someone offends you, you go to them privately and you talk to them. You look them in the eyes, one-on-one, and you work it out. But if he doesn't listen, if she doesn't listen, and it's a serious sin that cannot be overlooked, you involve the church. We saw, fourthly, that public and outrageous sin or harmful sin or persistent sin must be corrected by a loving church, by your loving elders. And to not correct in the name of Jesus Christ is not to love. As a father disciplines his son, so God disciplines us because he loves us and the elders of your church love you. They don't want to see you harmed. They want to see you restored. And fifthly, we saw that Jesus Christ himself delegates authority, spiritual authority, to your elders, to those people whom you've elected to serve as your shepherds. So when you elect elders, which we're in the process of right now, you're participating providentially in a work of God. So all that is is background and context. Today we see the backside of discipline. We see what happened after the discipline. And Paul is welcoming this brother back and encouraging the church to welcome the disciplined brother, the repentant brother, back into the fold. So at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'll read verses 5 through 11. This is God's holy, inspired, and errant word. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word for you this morning? Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. 
so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Amen. Please be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we pray that our eyes would be opened to understand these words, these truths that you have spoken, that they might be applied to our hearts effectively, that your word would not return void. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as I alluded to earlier, being in the body of Christ or being out of the body of Christ, we consider that to be a big deal. It's important being a member of a local body of Christ. It's so important that we take membership vows. Our denomination has vows that each of you have taken. And you think about this. This is a vow before the Lord and before a body of believers. When else do you take vows before God? When you get married, you take marriage vows before God. Till death do us part, for richer or for poorer. And to break that vow is a very serious thing. You basically are promising when you become members that you'll be a part of this local body of Christ till death do us part, unless there's some gross heresy or harm to the church. There are five vows that you take. I'll just go over them with you and really reaffirm them in your hearts as you hear them read. The first two relate to the gospel. To be a member, you have to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure, and without hope, save in His sovereign mercy? I do. Number two, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel? I do. The next three really affirm the standards of that membership. They affirm godly living and faithful attendance and submission to the authority of the elders and the word of God. Number three, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? I do. Number four, do you promise to support the church in its work and its worship to the best of your ability? I do. And finally, fifthly, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? I do. So notice that the biblical standards of the gospel are affirmed in these vows, as well as the necessity of submission to God's word, his government, and the discipline he's established, God has established, in every local church that's evangelical, that's God-centered, that's Bible-based, a real church. This is because Christ's church is not the same as becoming a member of the YMCA or Dollywood. Although that's how our minds think about membership often. Well, yeah, I'll pick this church. It looks like a good fit. 
It's not a nice add-on, your church membership. It's not like, a, oh, I found the best app for my phone, and this is going to make my life so much better. That's kind of how many of us look at church membership. I think I found a good app. It's, it's a good thing for my life. No, from the very beginning, the church and your membership in a local church has been among the most important details of your whole life. So is it any wonder that Satan attacks local churches and always has the covenant community of God from Adam until the end of time is a special focus for Satan's attacks and his methods are the same. They work. Why change? His methods are exactly the same. Corrupt the doctrine somehow. Spoil the worship somehow. Undermine the leadership somehow. Destroy the fellowship somehow. So Paul is addressing these problems with related to discipline and the sin of that person and welcoming them back, forgiveness and all of it, submitting to the elders as warfare against Satan. And that's what we'll see that it is. We're not unaware of his schemes. So I've titled the sermon, Keys to a Healthy Church. We're going to look at four things that I see in this passage that I think are keys to a healthy church. First is the understanding that sin brings grief, corporate grief, to all of us. When there's sin in the body, and sin that we all see, or even secret sin that's just wrapped a person up, we all are going to feel the suffering. It brings grief. Secondly, we'll see that repentance should bring complete forgiveness and restoration. And that's our our hope. Thirdly, we'll see that all discipline... And everything related to the church is really marked by love. By love. And fourthly, we'll see that discipline and, discipline and really all that we do as elders and all that you do as those being shepherded is done in the presence of Christ. So let's look at the first point. Sin brings grief, corporate grief. We see this in verse 5. He writes, If anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So just who is this? Exactly who is this person that Paul says has caused grief? Not to me so much, Paul says, but to all of you. Who is this guy? Some believe it's the person who's referenced in 1 Corinthians 5. who We talked about last week. This man who had married his father's wife and been disciplined. Others believe that the text indicates that this is someone else entirely. That someone was disciplined for his opposition to Paul. He was teaching false doctrine. We don't know exactly. In the end, it really doesn't matter. The biblical principles are the same. And he says in verse 5, what we all intuitively know, that someone who causes discord in the church purposely or accidentally by sin, via unrepentant sin, some kind of false doctrine, gossip, slandering, leadership, whatever, when it occurs, it doesn't just affect that one person. It affects the entire body. Paul often talks about the church as the body of Christ. I think many of you know this because I was limping around for about a year. I broke my toe about a year ago. You think, well, it's just a toe. What can that possibly matter to life? My eyes still work correctly but I couldn't go do the stuff I wanted to do with my eyes because my foot hurt so bad. My hands worked, 
but I couldn't do the work that my hands should do because my foot hurt. My heart worked, but when I would lay down and try to sleep, my toe was throbbing because the blood was pumping into it. My whole body was affected. In the same way, Paul says that this grief has really been spread to all the church. You've all felt this. Paul says it might have cost me some pain, but it's nothing compared to the, the pain that it's caused the entire church. If someone disrupts the body, the unity of the body, by unrepentant sin or stubborn pride or destructive tongue, all the other warnings Paul gives us, it affects us all. And this is really part of Satan's strategy. He wants to destroy the unity and the peace of the church. That's a goal. That's why in all of Paul's letters, every one of them, Paul exhorts the church, pursue unity, pursue peace. I'm not saying we never disagree. There will be disagreements, but they're handled in love. And we ultimately pursue unity and peace. It only takes one person to destroy the unity and peace of a church. That means each one of us are responsible for the unity and peace of the church. All of us. The key to every battle, ancient battles, modern battles, is good intelligence. It's one of the most important keys. In World War II, the British had deciphered all the German messages. They had this program. It's a wonderful story if you've not heard it. But they had this device that could decipher all of the secret messages, the encrypted messages that the Germans sent to all their troops everywhere. And Churchill himself was reading those messages within hours of them being sent. That's a critical piece of intelligence. They knew what the enemy was doing. In the modern Gulf War, we knew everything that Saddam Hussein was doing before he did it. We were reading his mail. That's great intelligence. Similarly, Paul says, we're not unaware of Satan's schemes. We know what he's doing. We know his strategy and his tactics. We're not going to be outwitted by him. So in light of the grief caused by sinful rebellion in the church, how does Paul say we respond to these attacks of Satan? He goes on to tell us. This is the second point. We respond to this with forgiveness. And repentance should always bring forgiveness. This is the second point. Look at verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Turn and forgive and comfort this man that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. If a person has been disciplined by the majority, meaning the church represented by the elders who are responsible, who have been given the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose, Jesus said, if these elders in the church have applied godly discipline, prayerfully applied discipline, and the person has repented, then no further discipline is required. Paul says, welcome him back. Forgive him and comfort him. No further discipline is required. We think that probably there were people who were Paul's allies in the church in Corinth who just really wanted to punish this guy, whoever he was. He was so opposed to Paul, and they just said, keep him out. Keep him out. He's, he's been too destructive. And you can kind of see why that might be good in their minds. And yet Paul says, no, 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 no. He's repented, and if he's repented, bring him back. And I think it's in our natures. Have you ever known someone who is always just throwing your sins in your face? Or maybe even implying 
that some past hurt is still in their minds, reminding you of the things that you've done, the things that you've done to hurt them. They don't receive you back into fellowship. They might say they forgive you, but if they're doing that, they're holding it over your heads. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Welcome him back in forgiveness. Jesus taught us this principle in the Lord's Prayer, if you remember. We pray, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus is highlighting the vertical and the horizontal component of forgiveness. We want to always be forgiving everyone vertically before God. If someone ever offends you and they never apologize, vertically you forgive them in your heart. You just say, Lord, I forgive this person. That doesn't mean that the, the horizontal relationship is right or restored or perfect, but vertically you're not holding any grudges. You just say, Lord, I forgive this person from my heart. And when they do come to you, your heart is already welcoming them. When they do come to you and repent, you say, I've forgiven you, brother. Welcome. Forgiveness is so important. And it's interesting that when Jesus taught this prayer to his disciples, it's a, an awesome prayer, an amazing prayer. You should be praying the Lord's Prayer, thinking through the Lord's Prayer every day of your life. But when Jesus had taught the disciples this prayer, he expounded on only one line of the prayer. I would think he would have expounded on our God as a Father, our God as being in heaven, our God's kingdom coming, His will being done. He doesn't expound on those things. What's He expound on? He says, if you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. That's the only thing, the fifth petition of the prayer. That's the only point He makes. I think it's critical that we understand that the world that we live in is marked by offense and holding grudges and being offended and keeping records of wrongs. We are a people marked by forgiveness and freedom and love. And we are enabled, because of God's forgiveness of us, we are enabled from the heart to forgive others in a way that the world just cannot do. So Paul says, we don't want excessive sorrow. We want restoration. We want comfort. Verse 7, he says, turn and forgive and comfort him. So how do you comfort someone who has repented, who feels grief for their sin and is repenting? Well, it's the same way you comfort your own soul when you think of your own grief for your sin against God. You need a right perspective to manage this grief. We all do. We've all, as Christians, been in this place where you see your sin and you know the great disparity between your sin and the holiness of God. You know the great offense that your sin has caused the holy God. And if you focus on that sin, you will be filled with despair. But the Bible encourages us to focus on our Savior. When you're being confronted with your sin, you look at the indicatives, the things that are done. The gavel has slammed down onto the onto the desk of our Lord. And He has declared you righteous. You don't look at your failures. When you are looking for comfort and grief and repentance, you look to Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's your loving Savior. He's your perfect sacrifice. 
He's the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. The propitiation of your sin, meaning that the wrath of God has already been put on him. There's no wrath left for you. He was crucified for your justification. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He chose you. He saved you. He justified you. He adopted you. It's done. You do not need to grieve your sin any longer. You repent and you move to salvation. You move to the work of God. When Paul contemplated these things in Romans 8, he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul gets it. If he was willing to give his own son, the creator God gave his own son, what else is there to do? If he has saved you and given you a love for Jesus, it's done. This is how we comfort our souls when we see the grief in our souls of our own sin. And if you love God and you see God clearly, the more you see God, the more that grief and the more your sin is just expanded in your mind. But we don't stay there. You take that thought straight to the Savior. Every time you remember all that He's done for you. As we just sang, when Satan tempts you to despair, reminding you of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. So we all are going to make mistakes in our lives. We're all going to sin. And you've sinned greatly against God. And you've sinned greatly against man. But even greater is the sacrifice of your Savior. You are a redeemed, justified, blood-bought son or daughter of God. So we need to forgive and comfort those who are repentant. So healthy churches, first of all, in review, we know that sin and rebellion cause grief for the whole body. So we pursue godliness. We pursue peace. Secondly, we see that repentance should bring forgiveness for God's people. But thirdly, we see that discipline is always marked by love. He says, I beg you, reaffirm your love for him in verse 8. Reaffirm your love. This is one of the things that Jesus said would mark the church of God. Remember, he said, all men will know that you are my disciples. What? If you love one another. This is what he said right before he was about to go and die on the cross. They were always arguing about who is the greatest. Oh, Peter said, I'm the greatest. No, 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 I'm the greatest. Remember a couple of them had their mother come and talk to Jesus? How embarrassing is that? Hey, Jesus, would you please help my sons be the greatest? And Jesus always went back to the same thing. The greatest among you must be your slave. And then he examples this by washing the feet of each one, the dirty, sloppy feet of each disciple as a slave would. He tells the Ephesians that we should all view ourselves as slaves of Christ. In this context of sacrificial love, this is what we see marking the church, is love for each other. Certainly they'll know we're Christians and 
In other ways as well, our lives certainly are different. We pursue godliness and not worldliness. Our speech is different. We don't talk like other people. Our time is spent differently on eternal things rather than worldly things and pleasures of this world. Indeed, we've forsaken worldly pleasure. We've forsaken status. We've forsaken wealth. And we pursue godliness and sacrifice and holiness. And besides these things, Jesus says that by our love for each other, the whole world knows that we're his disciples. Which is why we confront sin in love. And we speak truth in love. And in love we refuse to take offense. In love we harbor no selfish ambition or vain conceit. In love and humility we consider others more important or better than ourselves. In love we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, our words are like honey just dripping from our lips, encouraging and building up the body, every word. And in love we forgive from the heart and accept back the one who has offended, the church or you personally. And we comfort them in Christ. Which brings us to our last point. All of this is done in the presence of Christ. In the presence of Christ. What does that mean? Verse 9, Paul says, This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. This is part of what he's saying. This mutual submission to godly leadership. He's the apostle. He expects them to obey and submit to his desires. But then the elders of that church, he submits himself to their decision as well. Paul says he advised the church to discipline this man. The the elders were obedient. He wrote to see if they would be obedient. They were. They disciplined him. Makes me think too that obedience to elders, to pastors, to spiritual leaders is not something that's culturally acceptable today. If it ever has been. Our American minds immediately think of like the worst examples of pastors or elders. And yet when Paul speaks of church leadership... Every time he talks of real authority, exhort, rebuke, correct with all authority, he says to Titus or Timothy. And he expects that pastors and elders are to be obeyed just as he expected to be obeyed as an apostle. He says in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. Not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So there's a a spiritual authority that's granted to elders who are shepherding your souls. And they have to give an account for for their work. So what kind of biblical boundaries do we see here? Certainly this makes us uncomfortable. Well, that authority is declarative and it's spiritual. In other words, it's declaring the truth of the word of God to you. And to refuse to obey an elder who is declaring God's word to you is refusing to obey Christ in as much as that is God's word. The elders declare truth and you should obey it. That spiritual authority comes from God. In his providence, these are the men you've elected to rule you in a godly and loving way, to rule your spirits, to rule the church, to shepherd your spirits, I should say. But their judgments definitely have to be evaluated by the highest of all authorities, and that's God's Word. 
Everything has to be judged by God's Word. Is it scripturally sound or morally right what they're telling you to do? If so, it should be obeyed as unto Christ. Here's a couple examples. You must stop living in adultery with your boyfriend. You must stop. This is scripturally sound. It's morally right. You have to obey. It's said in love. It's said for your own good. There's no question. To disobey is to disobey Christ. Here's another. You should stop working on Sundays and honor the Lord's Day. This is scripturally sound. It's morally right. You must obey. These are things said in love, and you should listen. You should obey. You should never play cards or chew tobacco. These things are not in Scripture. You should respectfully question these kinds of commands. They have no basis in Scripture. But in terms of the painful and prayerful process of church discipline, which is the context of this passage, when discipline is applied, you need to know that it's been prayerfully administered, it's been agonizingly administered, and it's been judged off of the Bible itself. So when the elders agree on a course of action, the church should accept it, embrace it, and attempt to be obedient as possible and submit to that decision as unto Christ. It's hard enough for elders to discipline anyone in the first place. Every time I've ever been involved in any discipline, it's been agonizing. Sleepless nights, prayerful days. And yet Paul teaches that you should obey godly elders when they are disciplining someone or yourself because of Christ. It's done in the presence of Christ. This is verse 10, and this really is the clincher for me. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have anything to forgive, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Paul's affirming the authority of the local church. He's saying whatever actions they've taken, he also will submit to it. If they judge that the offending party should be restored, then he accepts it. If they want to continue discipline, he will accept it. But what a wonderful example of the high view Paul had for local elders in a church. He says, whatever they've done, I'm going to accept this thing. Why? Because it's done in the presence of Christ. What's he referring to? He's referring to Jesus' own instructions regarding church discipline. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives authority to the spiritual leaders of the church, talking about, at that time, the apostles, now the elders that are established in churches. Matthew 18, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Discipline. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Receiving back. Verse 19, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, that may be a generally true principle, but it's in the context of discipline. He's saying when two elders get together and prayerfully discipline someone, I'm right there in the midst of it. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Again, the context is discipline. He's saying, I'm with you. If you bind it on earth, it's bound in heaven. Imagine the authority he's he's giving to the elders of a church. 
It's so weighty that it can be overwhelming to think about. So Paul, in effect, is saying, the elders of the church discipline this man by the authority of Christ. Whatever they've done in the presence of Christ, binding or loosing, I agree with it. Because Christ is in it. So let's review quickly keys to a healthy church. Know the impact of the sin of the body. Sin brings grief and requires discipline. Repentance should always bring forgiveness, which is the goal, repentance and restoration. Remember that our discipline is always marked by love. Everything we do is marked by love. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. In other words, we're all taking up our cross. We're all dying to ourselves. That we should no longer live for ourselves, but we should live for him who died and was raised. Paul says this in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, the same letter. We're bound together by love. And all that we do, especially related to discipline, is done in the presence of Christ. So why is this important? And this is the conclusion. It's important in verse 10 because we know Satan's tactics. And to not do these things is to be outwitted by Satan. Forgiveness and restoration. When it's not offered, you're being outwitted by Satan. When you're undermining the authority of your elders, you're being outwitted by Satan. When you refuse to forgive, you're being outwitted by Satan. When you're willfully sinning in the church, you're being outwitted by Satan. Satan's desire is always to disrupt the church and pervert sound doctrine and destroy relationships and undermine leaders and inhibit right worship. We know this. And yet Paul says that in forgiveness and restoration, in love, we're actually warring against Satan. Loving each other, pursuing godliness in life, praying for and submitting to your elders. This is warfare against Satan. And to live in a way that's contrary to that is to be outwitted by him. You're falling into his trap. To grab a hold of offense when someone offends you and to say, yes, I'm offended. And I'm going to hold this. You're being outwitted by Satan. But a church guided by Christ's love and forgiveness and authority and prayer cannot much be affected by the schemes of Satan. Because God has established the church. Christ has defeated Satan and sin and death on the cross. We have nothing to fear. And our intelligence in this battle of the enemy is perfect. We're going to close with this hymn. I just want to read you the the first two lines. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft, talking of Satan, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have given us a knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that although the power of the enemy is great, and indeed we see him seeking to destroy your church all over the world, 
Yet we do not fear. Even in the midst of the most difficult problems that our church can face. Indeed, the public discipline of a brother or a sister. How distracting, how destructive that could be. And yet even in the midst of that, it's done in the presence of Jesus Christ for his glory. So we do not fear. We pray that you would give us all courage and boldness, especially as we consider your great immensity, your presence everywhere among us. Please help us, Lord. We need you. Encourage us, bless us, and help us to be a forgiving and loving people. In Jesus' name, amen.